Um, today, we're going to finish our sermon series on the emotions of Jesus, and we're going to look specifically at uh, what Jesus might have been feeling when uh, Jesus hung on the cross. And uh, specifically, there's a couple of things Jesus says while on the cross. We're going to look at one of those uh, where Jesus is quoting a psalm, and we're going to spend some time in that psalm. So before we jump into that, um, let's take a second, catch our breath, to breathe, um, and to, to, to center ourselves. So I invite you to take a couple of deep breaths, to sit in some silence, and then whatever it is that you may be brought into this space that you want to leave behind, you can kind of spend some time and breathe those things, exhale those things out uh, as we come before God. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks that in the stillness and in the quiet, you're there, that you are able to meet us in the whisper and that you're able to be here even when we're not aware of it, that long before we showed up, your presence was here and that your grace works in our lives before we're even aware of it. Oh God, we give you thanks for your grace. Speak to us today, regardless of what I have to say, God, help us to uh, experience uh, some element of what it means to be your people, to experience your presence. Uh, where there is a need of encouragement, encourage us. Where there is need of conviction, convict us, but meet us in this moment. In your name, amen. Last week, we looked at the story where Jesus uh, was spending time in the Garden of Gethsemane moments before he was arrested, betrayed by one of his own. He was arrested and then put on various forms of trial, beaten, mocked, paraded through the town, eventually hung on a cross, a Roman form of capital punishment for claiming to be a king when there was only one Caesar, and while on the cross, we read this from Matthew 27, 45 to 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema shabakim, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> the very presence of God amongst us felt separated from God. The very God is with me. The Manuel, God is with us, felt forsaken by God. Have you ever felt forsaken by God? I, uh, I have bad news for you. It's, it's hard to live a life of faith over a long period of time without feeling it at least once or twice, where your difficulties and your struggles or the circumstances of your life begin to make you question and wonder, like, where are you, God, in all of this? That's how Jesus is feeling. 
Jesus here is quoting a psalm, Psalm 22, and and I want us to imagine, and this is going to be some creative theological imagination, I almost want want us to imagine that Jesus is quoting this psalm, and he says the first line out out loud, but then maybe, uh, like any psalm or poem that you have memorized, maybe he kind of begins in, while hanging on the cross, working his way through this psalm. You can kind of just imagine that Jesus is reciting this psalm as a, as a source of comfort while he's in extreme agony. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to walk through Psalm 22. And uh, for the, I'm going to have a number of slides, but Psalm 22 is not going to be up on the screen. Um, but I do encourage you, if you're a visual learner, you can find it in your Bibles. Uh, Psalms is near the middle of the Bible. If you open up kind of the middle, you'll find Psalms usually if you thumb through a little bit. And you, what you want to do is just go to Psalm 22. I was going to look up the page number and I forgot, so you'll find it. You can also Google Psalm 22, and if that's helpful, we're going to we're, we're going to sit with this psalm. We're going to go verse by verse and and look at this psalm that Jesus uh, quotes while on the cross, and uh, we'll we'll go back and we'll keep going back to it through our time together. So Psalm 22, starting with verse one. Psalms, once again, are poems. They were a hymn book for the Jewish people, are a hymn book for the Jewish people. And uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful poem um, that I'm sure we lose quite a bit of its beauty when it's translated to English. But still, even in its translation, there's quite a bit here. So Psalm 22, verse 1 says this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? You know, um, for the series, at the beginning of the series, we passed out this, um, we passed out this feelings wheel. Hopefully you, you got, got one of these. I think there's one left in the back if you don't and, you, and you're interested. And it, it lays out all the kind of the basic uh, feelings um, uh, from, uh, what's, that, what's that Pixar movie? Inside Out. You know, bad, fearful, angry, disgusted, sad, happy, surprised. And then it kind of spirals out from there. And we've been spending time reflecting on the, the emotions of Jesus. And, and as I re- reflect on this psalm, as, as one of the things that Jesus seems to be feeling, even just in the first verse, if you go to the yellow part of the feelings wheel, um, you can, or the, the orangish yellow part where it says fearful, you know, uh, he's got most of these. He feels rejected persecuted, excluded, worthless, weak, inadequate, overwhelmed, anxious, exposed. All of these are very real emotions. Verse 2, it goes on, and, and the psalm continues to tell us what Jesus might be feeling. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. If you go over to the blue part of the feelings wheel, you, you can see feelings of being isolated or abandoned. And over on the green, you can look at what it says about being tired or stressed. Verse 3 goes on. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises in your ancestors. Put their, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and, deliver, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And he goes on, verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. You go to the red section, and you see emotions related to being humiliated, 
feeling ridiculed. If you keep going uh, like this through the whole psalm, it, it, it's likely that it, all of these emotions are being experienced in one way. There's a lot of emotions represented in this poem. And there are emotions that become clear that the longer you sit with them, they're, they're likely a representation of maybe how Jesus was feeling on the cross. I think it's maybe one reason why he quoted it, uh, because this psalm represents the story of the cross so well. Consider the next verse, verse 8. This is what the psalmist is complaining about. Verse 8 says, He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. This is what the psalmist says. The psalmist can hear the ridicules of his enemies. Oh, this person believes in God, so let God help them. What's crazy about this is this psalm's written hundreds of years, generations before Jesus is hanging on the cross. And yet it articulates the story of the cross so well. Check out what happened to Jesus, Matthew 27, verses 41 to 44. These will be on the screen. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Oh, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. There's this actually a really deep uh, criticism here that's worth considering. Those who believe in God can at times believe that everything happens, happens at the hand of God. So if Jesus was hung on a cross, that must have been what God wanted. We even teach that. If Jesus suffered, God must have wanted Jesus to suffer. There's even an atonement theory built all around this. God needed Jesus to suffer. So if we suffer, it's at the hands of God. Because if God didn't want it to happen, God would have stopped it. Through all of this, God becomes the blame for all the suffering in the world. Now, God's role in the suffering in the world is a different sermon. And, but today, God is just. And so those who suffer must have deserved it. This is what sometimes people think. I don't, I don't believe this is true. But this is one of the ideas laying under the surface of their mockery. Whether or not God shows up in our suffering determines whether God's on our side. So if, 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 if in fact, if Jesus is allowed to be killed, they say, and that just proves to the, to the people who want him killed that God must not be on Jesus' side. Because if God was on Jesus' side, God would have showed up and prevented it. That's what they're saying, right? That's the mockery. And it's not true. But that's the thinking. So I want you to hold on to that. We're going to come back to that. The psalmist is expressing this similar emotion that you see of Jesus on the cross. But all this talk of mocking and beating and pain and sorrow, the psalmist pivots. And, and I love this. Psalmists are really good at this. Many laments, not all laments, pivot. They don't just lament. So the psalmist pivots, and in poetry, um, which this is a poem, a pivot often happens with the simplest of words. We have a few poets in, in the room. A, a, a poem can change directions with just the easiest. And this word in this poem is the word yet. Oh, the power of a yet. Verse 9. Yet! 
the psalmist says, and I can imagine maybe Jesus is reciting this poem and he said, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. We've been having some conversations in our community around like the role of children in the church and why do we offer communion to kids if they're not old enough to understand it and baptism. He's not old enough to trust God, but he says, no, you made me trust in in you even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. (laughs) It's like uh, ashes that are imposed on you at Ash Wednesday. Jesus has been cast on my son. He doesn't have a choice yet. But from birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. The psalmist pauses to remember that before he could speak, before the psalmist could read or write or even be poetic, before they knew their own name or the name of their parents, before they could hold complex conversations on the nature of suffering and God in the world, when they were mere children and infants, God was with them. God was with them, even before they had the capacity to understand what it meant for God to be with them. We believe that God can work in someone's life without them being aware of it. I believe that. Do you? I mean, geez, yeah. If God was only able to work in my life in ways that I understood, I would be in trouble. God works in our lives in ways we don't understand this is so important to experience of suffering. God works in our ways in ways we don't know, even when we're, we're not, even when we're old enough to understand. The psalmist says, sure, people look at my suffering and question whether God is on my side, but I know that God has been on my side since the day I took my first breath. I can imagine Jesus reciting this poem in his head as he's hung on the cross, and as, as he gets to this verse, he maybe begins to remember his birth story, which would have been told over and over again, right? It's our favorite Story of Jesus. Baby Jesus is my favorite Jesus. <laughs> you know, the angels and the magi and the shepherds. God had been with him since the beginning. That while his suffering is great in this moment, his life is more than this moment. And God is with him. God doesn't leave us when we're hurt. So the psalmist cries out, knowing this is true. He leans into the pain, knowing that God will hear their cry. And in verse 11, it says, do not be far from me. My trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. I don't know about the bulls of that particular location, but I'm guessing they were fierce to be referenced. Roaring lions tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. It's like uh, images of uh, Daniel in the lion's den, right? I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet, the psalmist says. Hundreds of years before Jesus. They pierce my hands and my feet. Verse 17, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garment, the psalmist says. Just like in Matthew 27, verse 35, it says, when they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Think about that for a second. Jesus' clothes were worth more than his life. (laughs) He might have only owned the clothes on his back, and even that was being taken away and sold. So he's left with nothing, naked, alone, left to die. The pain and the sorrow and the hurt is horrible, bad, really bad. But the psalmist doesn't stay there. 
This is what I love about the Psalms. They don't stay there. They pivot again. It's like good poetry. You can pivot with just the smallest word. Last time it was yet. This time it was but. Oh, the power of a good but. That could be taken out of context. Sorry. (laughs) Verse 19, he says, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. No one else will. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. He's like getting everyone, like, no, we all should praise God for showing up when no one else will show up. For he has despised, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from me, from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Hear this again. The psalmist says, for he, for God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. You, you know, those, those memes, like how it started, how, how it's going. You guys ever seen these memes? Yeah. Here's how it started. I think I have a slide for this. How it started. Um, God, why have you forsaken me? That's how it started. But with the psalmist, as he goes through this process of thinking about God showing up over his whole life, how it's going, he has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. The the psalmist is disagreeing with their self. God never forsakes us. At some point, we have to come to terms with the reality that, that God is with us, no matter what. God wasn't doing these things to the psalmist and God wasn't doing these things to Jesus. People were doing them because God doesn't forsake us. But the bad news is that people do. People can be horrible. And, And what makes it extra difficult is when religious people are horrible. And I'm talking to the church now. When religious people are horrible, it's easy to assume that the God they serve must feel the same way. When, when people do horrible things in God's name, it's easy to assume that God did those things. But God hasn't. When it feels like God has forsaken you, friends, that is a legit feeling. Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt forsaken. Nothing wrong with feeling that way. But not everything we feel is true because God hasn't. And when the psalmist realizes this, they, they decide they have what is needed to move forward in life. Look, look at the direction the psalmist goes. Verse 25, if you have it open, it says, From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. Like the psalmist is pivoting a little bit again. He says, I've experienced great suffering, but I know that you haven't forsaken me. And so I'm going to do all the things I know I should do with my life. I'm going to move forward with action. He says, I'm going to fulfill my vows. I'm going to do the things that I know that you would have me do with my life. And what I love about this, look at the next verse, what the world would look like if people could move to a place where they're going to take action, trusting that God is with them, even in the midst of being a, living in a fairly dark world at times, that when we take action, here's how it would look. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Verse 26. Ooh. 
Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May their hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations and all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. There's a lot in this, but the part that I, I found really interesting is it talks about both the rich and the poor eating. Maybe together. Imagine that. I mean, how many parables did Jesus tell about the kingdom of God that included some sort of meal? We just celebrated a meal already today. There's a lot of other parables about a meal, and it always involved people from different walks of life working together. He says, like, when we step out and we're like, okay, God, you're with me. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to figure this out. A new kind of community is born from this pain where everyone has a seat and everyone gets a share in a meal. Verse 30, it says, prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, uh, yet unborn, God has done it. That's where the psalm ends. You know, the psalmist, uh, one of the ways in which the psalmist wrestles with the suffering they're experiencing and all the emotions attached to that is they first, they, t- they, they reflect on their own childhood, how God's been with them since the beginning, right? And then he ends by saying, and God's going to be with future children, you know, future generations, and God's deliverance. And, and here's what I think his point is, and we lose this sometimes because we're so individualistic. God's deliverance and God showing up in our lives isn't about one person, isn't just about me, isn't just about any of you individually. This specific moment in your life, making your life better right now. It's not about that. It's about how God shows up over time and across generations. How God is showing up in the lives of our kids and future kids. God has showed up in our life since before we were born. It's the overarching movements of God over a long period of time. Here, I want to I explain this. Um, uh, last year, I was taking Finn to school. And uh, we live uh, in Franklinton near downtown, so, and he goes to school in Clintonville, so we hop on 315 North. And uh, that's what it's called, right? That, that, that road? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we go to school every morning. We, t- we drive him up to school, and we're driving, and Finn had just learned about north, south, east, and west. So he's, like, become aware of, and, you know, whenever kids learn about something new, that's all they want to talk about. So he asked me, he says, uh, um, hey, Dad, what direction are we headed? And I, and I know what he meant because he'd been talking about north, south, east. I said, we're headed north, right? We live here, and his school's up here, so we're headed north. And he says, nope, we're headed east, and I was like, uh, no. And then he pointed out the uh, rear view mirror. We got one of those fancy cars. And it tells you the direction you're headed. And it said east. Because at that particular moment in time, <laughs> our car was pointed east. I promise you, and I tried to explain to him, we were headed north. We just happened to be pointed East at that moment. Oh, he was so confused by this. If you've ever seen Finn confused, you know. He was so confused. So we, um, uh, um, uh, we get to the school, and I, I, I was like, I'll explain it to you. And I, I love explaining these types of things. So I was like, I'll explain it to you. He hops up in the front seat before we walk in, and, and I explain it to him. I draw him a picture very similar on a scrap piece of paper. It looks like this. And I said, I said, as you can see, the car is headed north. 
If you think about the direction it's moving from the bottom of the page to the top of the page, it is headed north. But roads aren't straight lines. And sometimes they head in different directions. For example, what direction is the car headed now? Well, northeast, right? It's still on a journey north. I had to explain this to Finn. Even if the compass says northeast, it's still headed north. Or what about this? Where's the car headed now? Southwest. How can a car be headed southwest if you say we're headed north? It's still headed north, even if at this exact moment, the compass says southwest. This is life. At any given moment in your life, you might be headed south or east or west, but when you trust God, when we zoom out and consider what God is doing over the course of our life, over the course of generations of how God is, when we zoom out that far, we can see that no matter what the compass says in that moment, we're still headed north. When you feel like you're headed in the wrong direction, when we trust God, you're still headed north. When Jesus hung on the cross, it was a major turn in the road, a real regular old loop-de-loop, you know. We're talking mountain pass where you spiral in circles. But that's not where the story ended. And it was, I imagine, a horrible moment in Jesus' life, but it wasn't the end of the story. God wasn't done working. God hadn't forsaken him. God hasn't forsaken us because God is the God of resurrection. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said it like this, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It's long, but it bends towards justice. The path of God might wind in all kinds of directions, but it's bent towards justice. The good news of Jesus is this. No matter what turns our road takes, no matter how winding the road is or how many times it wraps around, the road's headed north. God hasn't forsaken us. God hasn't forsaken you. What you're feeling right now, whatever it is, good, bad, indifferent, it's fine. You're allowed to feel whatever you're feeling. I want you to remember, though, that where you are right now isn't always a good metric for where you're headed. Your car might be pointed east, but if you stay on the road, you will get north. Just because things are hard right now doesn't mean they always will be. Just because you're sad right now doesn't mean you'll always be sad. And I think emotional health, as we've talked about what Jesus felt, we've tried to talk about emotional health, it's realizing that this chapter is one of many chapters, that this moment is one of many moments, and our story isn't over, and one moment doesn't have to define you. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. God, we wrestle with the command that you, that you present to us. You say, pick up our cross and follow you. <laughs> As if it's some sort of invitation to take a mountain road, one that might make us nauseous or confused or we might feel lost at times, that somehow the first will be last and the, death will ri- the dead will rise again and all of the paradoxes of our faith, you invite us into those. And through it all, Lord, help us to trust you especially when we're confused, when we're, we feel lost, when we feel like we're heading in the wrong direction. Remind us that you are with us and that you'll never leave us or forsake us, that not even death can separate us from your great love, that your love always wins.
We give you thanks. In your name, and all of God's people said, amen.